Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. into today's episode, I have to tell you about Level Up Your Listing Women's Summit in Scottsdale, Arizona, February 27th, 28th, and March 1st. This is the biggest women's event ever in the hospitality and real estate industry, and we've secured the ultimate speaker lineup of some of the most inspiring women in the industry, from thanks to visiting Sarah and Annette, to the short-term shops Avery Carl, to Julie George, also known as the Million Dollar Host, and so many more. Not to mention our special guest, April Brown of Netflix. Netflix's motel makeover and co-founder of the famous June Motel. Our sessions range from how to save tens of thousands every year on taxes, how to build a hosting business that you could one day sell for millions, how to work with insurance companies to get midterm rentals secured for 100% occupancy, and that's just the beginning. Gather with 350 women just like you who are passionate about hospitality design and guest experience. This event is also for women who support hosts. So if you're a designer, stager, photographer, realtor, social media manager, muralist, or anything else you need to be here. Head to levelupyourlistingsummit.com and use code NATALIE10 for 10% off your ticket. Tickets are going quicker than ever, and this event is sure to sell out, so secure your seat today. If you are ready to be the best host you can be with the best hosting business you can have, you have earned a spot here. We cannot wait to meet you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today I have on Sarah Glidewell and Emily Carnaz, better known as the Carwells on Instagram and TikTok. And if you haven't heard of them yet, I don't know where you've been because they are blowing up on social media. Sarah and Emily, thank you guys so much for being here. Do you guys want to quickly run through some intros and then uh, let's get into today's topic about how to get private money for your deals? Yes. Well, thank you for having us. This is uh, amazing. We're usually the ones hosting. So every now and then it's good to have a breath of fresh air on uh, being the guests. So um, for your listeners, if you don't know who we are, we are the Carwells. Um, Emily and I have been at this short-term rental game for almost four years now. We are entering our fourth year um, and we have done everything under the sun. We have not niched down yet, which might be a fault, but I mean, we have done everything from arbitrage, purchasing, to raising capital, to educating, to investing with others, to, you know, everything in between. Um, so we've gotten a, you know, a taste of a wide variety of things and, and we're still kind of getting our our balance. So we're excited to be here. Even within that, I feel like you guys have done like so many different markets and types of properties too, like not just different hosting models, but I'll see you like at the lake in Michigan. And then the next day you're like on a bus in Texas and I just like cannot follow your life at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the chaos uh, never really ends. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Emily, what about you? And I'd also love to know how you guys like started working together. Yeah, so I started, well, my story kind of starts in Airbnb with working with Sarah. We, um, in 2020, when I couldn't get a job after getting my master's degree, we started Carwell Design originally to start designing for other hosts because we needed income and we were both creative. And so that's kind of my start into the industry. And then over the past three years, I really, I mean, we've worked with like Super Slabs raising money. We've designed for other hosts. We've done arbitrage. And now I actually just purchased my first property that I am currently in right now. And I am taking to be an Airbnb. I'll be here for about a year because it's a very slow grow process for me. I'm not, not trying to move too quickly. Um, because my husband does travel a lot for work. So getting stuff done takes a little bit longer. But yeah, that's kind of how I started and how we started working together. Um, Sarah and I have known each other since third grade. We've been best friends since third grade. So the transition from being best friends 
athletes together, living together in college, transitioning to being business partners was really seamless for us. Wow. So people always say you should not get into business with your friends. How has it, how has it paid off so far? I think it's been really good. We've heard that so many times at the beginning of this, people were like, are you sure you want to do that? Like, this is a really big deal. What if you guys like lose your friendship? And I think for us specifically, and I know that this would not work for every best friend group because that's just not how it works. But Sarah and I prioritize our friendship over our business, which I don't think a lot of people necessarily do. And so we would rather see literally all of it fall apart and figure out something else than lose our friendship because we've been friends for so long. But I also think that because we're, we've had hard conversations as friends, it's easy to have hard conversations as business partners and just be able to find solutions to things. And us being complete opposites really works well because we don't really infringe on each other's territory in the business. Like I do my thing, she does her thing, and then it all blends and works really well. (laughs) That's totally something I've noticed about you guys. Like just from the glimpse I've gotten by social media, it seems like you two have very defined roles and like, you know what each of you is good at and there's no like stepping on each other's toes. That's my outsider perspective, but... Yeah, I would say you guys do a good job at that. Um, Well, anyway, that's a really, really cool journey. I think it's amazing you guys are working together. Um, And I guess that leads into the topic of getting private money. I specifically reached out to you guys because there's a project that I'm very interested in right now that would be like, I literally would need like four or five million dollars between like the purchase and the renovation. And my first instinct was just like, I guess it's not right for me. Like I can't afford it. And then I was like, screw that. There are so many people I know who are like really good at finding other money. I've been to so many networking events. Like I can do this, but I just don't know how to even structure these deals and like where to start, what to lay out in terms. How do you still get equity in it? Like I have so many questions for you guys. So I reached out and asked if you'd be willing to come on. And luckily you guys said yes. And so let's get into this. I'm such a newbie when it comes to private money. My one investment property was like a very traditional Freddie Fanny loan through the bank, you know, and I like outside of that, I know nothing. So how about you tell us a little bit about your journey of like getting private money and what that looks like today? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey for sure. Um, and I mean, we were in your shoes literally a year ago, right? We had no idea how to raise private capital. We had no idea how to use other people's money. And you like see other people doing it and you're like, wow, they just like really must know all this secret sauce. Um, And just like literally everything else that we've experienced so far, where it seems like this really giant obstacle, once you go through it a few times, you're like, this is what I was like avoiding (laughs) for so long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, for us, you know, in all things, we try and find someone who's already done it um, and to learn behind that person. And so um, a lot of our experience last year was with Superhost Labs and Superhost Labs is a fund and they are raising money from um, everyday people and reinvesting it into short-term rentals. And so a huge motivation for Emily and I, because, you know, like when we worked for Superhost Labs, we left our nine to fives, not wanting to work for anyone else and wanting to keep it small and wanting to have, you know, the freedom of time, freedom of travel, freedom of deciding what we want to do and when we want to do it. Um, And we decided to give that up for a portion of time specifically to really start understanding how to use other people's money. Um, So we joined them with major intent to, you know, be around people who understood how to do that and and allowed us to learn how to do it um, instead of having to pay to learn how to do it. Um, so a fund is like on the extreme side, but from a very basic point of view, um, in raising private capital, what we realized is it, it really is all about the presentation. Um, so that was, I think a biggest, a big lesson for us is just the preparation that goes in on the front end of a deal that you're really passionate about. Um, you know, again, it's like, you don't have to be the most experienced person in the entire world. You don't have to have all of the answers, but if you can present the opportunity in a way that is digestible for the person who is being presented the offer, um, you have a a great response, right? It's, you have a much higher chance of collecting that money from that person. So with Subaru Slabs, when we were working with them, there was a very defined deck that was created around the offering and the offering was the same for every single person who was coming in. 
which is different than if you're raising it for individual deals like you're probably looking at or like we're doing now, um, which requires a whole new deck for every single property. So once we started really understanding that and how to present it in a way that, um, you know, has intent of sales in it, but is very clear, concise, digestible, we were like, okay, we can copy and paste this for properties that we find, you know? I mean, we're we're raising capital for this company and we're not making nearly as much as if we were raising it for ourselves and deploying it into properties that we specifically are passionate about. Um, so that, that was kind of the first component of it that was like, oh, it really is like a PowerPoint. <laughs> it really is like this That's deck it. that you put together where you you present this amazing opportunity. That's so um, funny. I sorry to interrupt, but when we were just at the STR Summit in Orlando, which is the first time I met you guys in person, um, somebody came up to me after my speaking session and said, like, you know, I was talking about co-hosting and they were like, So how do you like pay out your cleaner as a co-host and stuff? And I was like, Venmo. And they were just like, what? Like, you don't use some, like, accounting software? And I was like, no, like, my bookkeeper tracks it, but just Venmo. And they were just like, I've literally been overthinking this for, like, months. Like, I just didn't want to start co-hosting because I didn't know, like, the software. So literally just PowerPoint. Like, I think we just overthink these things so much. Okay, good to know. PowerPoint. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, literally. Like, for us, we were, like, really expecting there to be, like, this secret sauce that, like, nobody talks about and you can't (laughs) look up on YouTube. And, like, the second we were, like watching the investor relations happen and watching people hand us money. And like, we were like, oh my gosh, they're literally doing this off of a half hour conversation with a really digestible deck that you send them and they can review on their own time. And, you know, and it was just, that was how the ball got rolling. Right. Um, and investors interested. So there is a component of understanding what a good deal looks like, right? Like you have to be able to like break down the numbers for people where they understand what they're getting, what you're getting, Um, and really you don't even have to go into that when you're presenting a deal. Like I, with orange Cadillac, for example, I did not outline how much we were willing to give investors because I wanted it to be something that was a win for investors and a win for us. So all that we were presenting in that project was that it was a good deal, that we had it under contract, that we were ready to move forward on it. Um, and that we were looking for capital and we were looking for people who wanted to be a part of this, you know, beautiful Airbnb. Um, can we, can we pause on that? So when you say you got it under contract, even without having the funds lined up. So what did you do here? You put like your earnest money deposit down to just get the escrow process started. And then were you confident you could get the money within a 30 day escrow? Or did you ask for a longer escrow or something? Like how does that happen? And by what point? If you don't get the money, do you pull out? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, on Orange Cadillac, I was really intentional about partnering with someone who was really experienced in lending. Like for me and walking in Orange Cadillac, I was like, okay, what does my ideal team look like? Like, what are my strengths and where are the gaps in our knowledge from Subaru Slabs? And so that was a huge portion of it is like, how do I make sure that these investors aren't just going to go to this property and immediately get it under contract themselves and just like cut me mm-hmm. out of the deal? Okay. Um, and, and so a portion of that was making sure that I had the right person beside me who had the strengths that were opposite of my strengths that really could handle that side of, of the project for me. So, um, so I ended up partnering with a guy named Matt who owned a lending company. Um, and it was a commercial, like this specific house happened to be zoned commercially. And so we, we handled it as a commercial lending situation. Um, and he added some contingencies in there that, you know, we had to do X, Y, and Z before we would actually close on the house. Um, but we were, confident enough that we could raise the capital that we were willing to lose our earnest money on the off chance that we couldn't raise the capital. Okay. Okay. So how is that what like a lot of people do who are looking for money? Like, would they put out multiple earnest money deposits on different deals and just like try to see what they can raise money for and take that risk and losing it? Like, how does this all work? Are you guys just more strategic? Like you, you focus in on one property at a time. And if that one falls through, I don't know. How do you like spread yourself out and know which deals to go for? Yeah. So we're back in the same situation again, like we were at the beginning of Orange Cadillac, where we have another property that we are ordering appraisals for literally today. Um, And we've got a lot of money invested in it on already like having inspections done and so on and so forth. And we don't have the capital raised for it yet. Like we are going to be asking for nearly $900,000 on a project that we don't have set investors on thus far. 
Um, and so it's one of those things that there is risk. There is money that you could potentially be losing. Um, but you know, you want to make sure that your position is safe and that, that you've got, you know, a team behind you that can set it up and make the deal juicy enough that other people are interested in it. Um, but it also kind of plays into the fact that we don't outline exactly what the offering is on the front end because we want to entice, you know, potential investors into the deal and really understand what would make it a win for them. So we have kind of a standard outlined on like what a win looks like for us, but it's a range, right, on what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. And so we want to leave that flexibility so we can meet an investor or several investors in the middle and make it a win for everyone all the way around. So what are some of the conditions that you would be willing to negotiate on? Like, I I kind of think of it that there's like three components. There's like equity in the property, um, right? Then there's like the percentage of the cash flow going on. And then I guess the other would be like the amount of ownership, like how many votes there are to like sell it or something like that. Am I missing anything? Those are like the three in my head I kind of think, think too. Yeah. And then the management fee. That's management the only fee. other okay. one that's like a negotiating point. Okay. Um, and it's, and it's interesting. It's like when you get into those negotiations, like with Orange Cadillac, we were super interested to see what was the motivation behind each investor, because it, you know, it's never the same. Like you can't expect all of your investors to have the same list of priority as the next investor. Um, and so a big learning lesson that I think Emily and I had going into Superhost Labs is that we thought that there was like this very standard way to do it. And like this person gets X, this person gets Y, and that's just like a very average real estate partnership. Um, and what we were taught almost immediately is that almost no partnership is structured the same because there's no two same people that have the same amount of motivation, same amount of experience, same amount of value. Um, and so every single deal that we walk into looks a little bit differently um, with intent to try and make it a win across the board for everyone. I would love to know for you guys, what are those pieces and components that are like non-negotiables for you? And I'm sure it changes on every deal, but is there a certain like, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it changes from deal to deal, but maybe there's something where you're like, I always want 50% ownership in the property or like, is cash flow more important to you and you're willing to give up equity? This is just a selfish question where I just want to know for, for you guys what you think through. All right. Emily, do you want to answer this for you? And then I'll answer it for me on what you would prioritize versus what I would prioritize. Yeah. And like you said, the way that I'm thinking about it, it's like obviously different per property because it, it depends on how much work somebody's willing to put in because there are some people, like I know a partnership that Sarah did with her brother and like partnerships that I'm looking forward to doing with my family that we're talking about. Are they willing to put sweat equity in? Are they willing to do management, things like that? As far as like cash flow, I I would want to split the cash flow 50-50, I guess, depending on like, if I'm bringing all the sweat equity and they're bringing all of the cash, the cash flow, I would do 50-50 and the equity in the property would be the thing that I would negotiate the most, um, probably. That's how I would look at it. And then obviously, I guess the cash flow would be different because we would need to talk about the management fee. Are they bringing management? Am I bringing management mm -hmm. fully or are we splitting that? But I would like to, in that specific partnership with my parents, I'm looking at it as I want to split the cash flow 50-50 because then we both get something out of it from there. But then if I'm bringing all the sweat equity, I, I, I get something out of it. You know, I yeah. guess that's like how I'm looking at a future partnership that I would have. And is that yeah. something that like investors are totally willing to hear out? Like I front 100% of the money, but I want it to be completely passive. And if you're willing to do the work, we can go 50-50. Yeah. Well, and what was interesting in Subaros Labs is, you know, we weren't the only people in Subaros Labs that were raising capital. So the clientele that we were bringing was different than the clientele that other people were bringing, right? And we were really trying to understand, like, the avatar around the person that's not directly related to us, why they would be looking at us to give money to, or how, how do we tap into the market that's paying attention to us that has money, Right, because our community, just like yours, is very social media based, right? Um, and so we get a lot of people who are looking at us who have zero dollars, right? Who are looking to get in at co-hosting or getting in at arbitrage or so on and so forth. And so um, we were trying to understand, you know, what type of person is in our community that is ready to hand out capital. And we had a mentor at that point in time 
um, who was raising a ton of capital from the tech world. Like they had come from the tech world. They knew a ton of people in the tech world that were making $400,000 plus and had a lot of expendable income. And so we were looking at our community and we were like, our community is in real estate. Like, how are we going to convince people to give us money on our projects when they've got their own projects that they're working on? So not only do we have a huge group of people who have $0 who are looking to get started in real estate, but then we have a bunch of people who have a ton of money that have their own projects going on. And like, how do we find that synergy? Yeah, that's such Um, an interesting dilemma to run into. I didn't even like think about it that way. Okay. Okay. Continue. I cut you off. This is so interesting. (laughs) So what we ended up finding out is that there is an entire group of people who have rinsed and repeated the short-term rental model on their own, whether it be through multifamily, single-family homes, arbitrage, whatever the case may be, and and they want that time freedom. They want the freedom to be wherever they want to be, when they want to be there. They see that there is a ton of value in short-term rentals. They want to keep investing in short-term rentals, but they're sick of being the boots on the ground. Like, I mean, anyone who's put together a property, like Emily is currently sitting in one that she's putting together, you know how cumbersome and how exhausting that process is. Like it is, it's not hard, but it's hard work and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and there are a lot of hiccups and there's a lot just chaos, right? It like, it runs over your life for the period of time that install takes. And so if you've done that seven times, if you've done that eight times, if you've done that nine times, all of a sudden you're like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do it anymore. Like, I don't want to be a part of it. Um, And so that's kind of the pigeonhole that we have found that is a group of people that is staring at us that is ready to give us capital. Um, and so we've started capitalizing on that. Like we've, we've really started leveraging our social media specifically to have a, you know, a link in our bio that says invest with us and creating an email list of those potential investors. And, and so now when we find a property that we think is a viable option that we want to be boots on the ground for, that we want to use other people's money for, we can send out a deck that we put together and outline a property and send it to them and then get a, you know, a pretty decent response of people who are immediately relatively interested. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You answered my question before I could even ask it. Cause I was going to lead into how do you find people who want to <laughs> invest with you? Um, do you require somebody to be like an accredited investor or do you have a minimum investment amount you want from people? Yeah. Emily, were you going to say something before I answer this question? Yeah, I was just going to say, I was really surprised when we started talking to people about bringing capital in that, so the the specific market that we're looking in, right, are people who probably have short-term rentals already and they're just looking for boots on the ground. Mentally, I was thinking that their priority would be cash flow, but a lot of the people that are investing with us, cash flow is not their priority. It's more the equity in the property. Mm-hmm. Of course, they want the cash flow. They like the cash flow. They like making that money without like with us doing the work for them. But their major priority was having somewhere to park their money and having equity in the property and the cash flow was just kind of a bonus. So it was a little easier. I think it's a little easier to negotiate that aspect because they already have their short-term money through their own properties, but the long-term money is the thing they're worried about through the equity in the property. That is such an interesting point because I think like Sarah, you kind of just touched on this too, that the people who are willing to invest are people who already have money and like they like cash flow might not be a big motivator for them. So for somebody who is trying to get cash flow, like that's such an easy partnership. I think that that's such a such a good point you touched on. It's just crazy that I think a lot of people, myself included, who haven't been down this process, it's we assume that everybody thinks the same way that we do. And so to me, I'm like, oh, if I'm motivated by like wanting, you know, to make all this money, like, you know, every month and and have like a nice paycheck coming in, that's what everyone else is going to want or whatever it is. If you if you really want equity in the property, you might think that's what everyone wants. But there's so many different perspectives. I remember, too, <clears throat> at the STR Summit in Orlando, when Amy Majori was speaking, I think she asked people to raise their hand, like raise your hand if you're looking for money. And it was like 75% of the room raise their hands and then raise your money, raise your hand if you have money to give. And it was like 25%. And I was shocked it was that many people. But again, I think so many people just think like, oh, like I'm, I'm broke. Like I just need somebody to fund my deals, but who's going to do that? And there's actually so many people out there who are willing to do that. Right. Right. And I think, you know, especially if you've had your own short-term rental, right? Like I think it's, 
it's one of those things that you see a lot of people who are getting into the real estate industry who are looking for capital as their first move. And so for me, like we never did it that way, right? Like, you know, Amy Majuri will preach all day long. Like you do not have to have a portfolio of properties to raise capital. And I could totally see how that's true but it would definitely be a harder sell, right? Yeah. And and for people like us who have been very vocal on social media about, you know, watch us do this process, like, you know, go through this process with us. Like, we're going to show you our, our back end and we're going to show you us setting up these properties and we're going to show you our numbers and we're going to show you our success. When we present an opportunity to someone who doesn't want to be that person anymore and doesn't want to be the boots on the ground, it's like, what other viable option do they have? Like they can invest their money in the stock market and get an average return. They can choose to do another property on their own and just suck it up and have to go through that insane process. Or they have to find someone like us that they trust with their money, that they know knows what they're doing, and then they can still get higher returns to the stock market. They can keep it in the industry that they're familiar with. They have a better, you know, more controlled idea on what the return is going to be because they know how to analyze the deal themselves. And they're just really looking for someone who can basically be a copy and paste of them without requiring them to be there. And so for us, we've figured out that 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 can be us. <laughs> that is just brilliant. I feel like you're just demystifying so many things. Like, I was like, do I have to go to like Wall Street and just like approach, like, how does this work at all? But you're right. Like, the people who have already done 10 properties know how much work it is and know that they probably don't want to keep doing it forever, but they are the perfect demographic that already understands the returns in real estate. So, like, you don't have to pitch them on that part at all. This is like, you're blowing my mind. This is so smart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think there's something to be said about um, knowledge in your market, too. Like we have a couple that has, we just did a podcast with them and they're interested in the Michigan market, but they really don't know anything about the Michigan market. They're still building properties. They still want to put the work in, in their own market that they know intimately, but they're like, you guys know this market better. So partnering with you is probably a better idea than us just coming in all on our own. So being the the person in your market who knows it the best, that's a huge selling factor as well. So do you guys have investors who are doing both? They're still actively investing and putting the work work in and whatever, flipping and co-hosting their own properties, but also parking money like passively in other markets to diversify? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you think about when we're in this stage, I mean, you're in a stage with one property of your own. We're in a stage with under five properties that are purchased that are our own. It's like when you pass that five to six property mark, you've got more cash coming in than you can deploy on your own, unless you want to start like building out teams that are like doing multiple properties at once. And so, you know, that's exactly what they're doing. They're like, oh my gosh, like we see the tax advantages of pouring our money and burying it in real estate, but we literally can't get it out of our hands fast enough. And so all of a sudden they're like, okay, let's start diversifying our portfolio. Like we'll continue building in our market, but let's pay attention to other markets and let's find experts in those markets and hand them some money. So while we're building, they are also simultaneously building and it is a smaller return for them, right? They're They're funding something that has a significantly lower cash on cash than the properties that they're doing themselves, but still they're reaping all of those tax benefits. They're pouring it into something that they're still getting equity from. And even in a partnership, they're still getting a higher return than they would in a standard stock market situation. So um, it's still a win for them. It's still the best option for them to keep their money in their pocket. Okay, very interesting. So I want to go back to the question about um, if there's like a minimum amount of money you want to take from people or do you only take accredited investors? And also, is there a like sweet number of people that you like to bring on to a deal? Like I'm sure you don't want 15 investors on something because it's just so many people to manage. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, rule of thumb for us is the fewer the better. (laughs) You know, we want as few hands in the pot as possible. Um, And we want the right investors. Like, you know, you and I heard Amy speak and it's like, not all money is good money. And so you want to make sure that the money that you're taking is is with people that you want to go into business with. Because at the end of the day, you are starting a business with them. Like you are going to have to run that property with them looking over your shoulder for the next, in theory, at least five years. Um, As far as a minimum amount, 
with real estate, with our situation specifically, if you are investing with people who have no real estate experience prior and you don't have a pre-existing relationship with them, then they have to be accredited. Like legally, they have to, you know, make over $200,000 a year or $300,000 a year if they're married. Um, but if you have a pre-existing relationship with them or they are deemed experienced in real estate, then there is no minimum amount because it's just the SEC's way of making sure that we are not taking advantage of people and you know uh, who okay. don't understand real estate, who can't understand that deal, or who don't have a pre-existing relationship with us to make sure that we're not just like selling them a line and, and not going to give them the kind of return that we're promising. Um, but in our case specifically, we're dealing with people who have an entire portfolio that already exists. So it removes that um, layer of protection that the SEC implies. So um, for us, there is no minimum, um, you know, assuming that they are an experienced real estate investor already. Um, but that's that's definitely where it gets a little hairy. Um, and with that being said, you know, we see people who start email campaigns and they collect emails just like we are. And as long as you have a trail of an existing relationship for a while before, like say somebody joins your email list and you start cultivating that relationship for the next six months and understanding what their needs are and, you know, kind of educating them on the deals that you've been doing in between meeting them and potentially doing a deal with them, then that also would qualify them as part of your warm market, part of someone who knew you had a pre-existing relationship with and then it also removes the the need for them to be accredited that's that's literally like the legal definition you need a pre-existing relationship that's the most <laughs> yeah. like loosely defined thing i've ever heard <laughs> right wow. right and i mean the sec is not like trying to bark down your throat it's like the sec doesn't want some big guy to come in and say hey i can make all these little people a million dollars and everybody hands them their last 20 okay. grand and all of a sudden it makes zero dollars right sure. like the people who invested it couldn't understand the deal to begin with. They got taken advantage of. And all of a sudden you just took a bunch of people's last 20 grand. Like it's there to protect people. Um, but in our case, specifically when we're dealing with people who have a lot of experience in real estate, like it's almost an advantage because you're like presenting them this deal. And it's almost like they're double checking your work because they really intimately understand how to tell a good deal from a bad deal. Okay. So you prefer, so look, this is full circle. You two started business as friends and now the people you get as investors, you like to have a relationship with and be more friendly with them already. Okay. So you're, there's already that built in trust a little bit there. Um, this is perfect. Cause this leads me to my next question. I honestly think that my biggest hangup of myself not getting private money is probably a mindset thing. And I think I am just so scared if I lost their money. Like, honestly, I will put anything into a deal I believe in. And if I lose the money, I'd be like, oh, well, I gave it a shot. I can honestly brush that off. But the thought of me losing someone else's money, I would go into a crippling depression. Like, how how do you deal with that? That's exactly my problem. I'm equally as terrified of that same thing. But somebody said the other day, and this sounds like it's a funny quote, but it's investing is investing is investing, which means that there's always a risk when you're going to invest. And if you're working with people who have invested previously, they know the risk that they're taking on. And I think like what Sarah said is you, if you're doing it with people who already work in real estate, the way that we are doing it, they're kind of double checking your work for you. So they are believing in what you're telling and you're analyzing the property and they're analyzing it. They're believing in it just as much as you are. And I think that's the part that brings so much comfort to me personally is knowing that they know how to analyze the property just as much as we do. And so we're both looking at it from the same lens. That's such yeah. a good point. Because when you do go into a deal on your own, it really is just you kind of trusting yourself. But getting that stamp of approval from people who are willing to give you tens of thousands of dollars is actually kind of reassuring in a way to be like, all right, I did run the numbers correctly. Other people are seeing the same returns I am. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for us in the Michigan market, like Michigan's market does not have ample data, right? It's not like the Scottsdales of the world where you can really find an apples to apples comp where you're looking at a property and there's like if you have a three bed, two bath that you're looking at, there's like 12 other three bed, two baths on the same street. Right. And you can really get a good idea of what you can anticipate making. That does not exist in Michigan. Like everything looks like grandma's house. Like every single deal we do, we literally, we might have one comp that is proof of concept, or we have zero comps that are apples to apples. And we see one that's like poorly designed, poorly ran, poorly photographed is making okay money. 
And we're like, okay, well, if we beat them on every corner, then like sky's the limit, but we don't know what that limit is, right? Mm -hmm. We're like, okay, well, hopefully it makes, you know, 30% more or whatever. Um, And so for us, you know, it's really worked out to our advantage to have people who are familiar with short-term rentals and familiar with this game and who are willing to take high risks because like with Orange Cadillac specifically, there was not ample comps to show off a 16-person in Cadillac, bright orange property with all these bells and whistles. Like there literally was nothing. And so it was a super high risk investment. And so for us, we were like, okay, well, we need high risk investors who are willing to like really put it on the line. And we just have to be really honest on the front end that like, look, this is the data that we do have. These are, you know, the examples that we can provide. This is why we believe in this property. But at the end of the day, you have to be willing to take the same risk that we are. And, and so yeah, it's just like hoping that you find that right match for the right property. Okay. Okay. So there's people out there willing to take that risk. Because <laughs> some of the projects <laughs> yeah. that I want investors for are like very creative, like, I don't know, a treehouse village, you know, and that was like another thought I had was with a property, at least you if you get a partner on a property, I feel like you always at the end of the day can convert it to a long term rental can sell it. But what makes me nervous too is these more creative ventures where you're just literally creating something out of nothing like a camper village or something or like a little airstream village. How? I don't know. Is there I guess there's just more risk and the investors have to just be on board with that. Is that really what it comes down to? Yeah. I had this conversation literally yesterday with one of the investors on Orange Cadillac. Um, Because to be honest, I mean, Orange Cadillac, when we launched it, like the team that we've got is five people. It was like two boots on the ground, three investors, silent investors. And truly, they haven't really been that silent, right? Because it's like we've been leaning on them to come up with ideas. And none of us have ever done a property that's this large to this caliber in a place that has as little of data as it has. Um, and we open it up in slow season, right? So it's like, we've got so much working against us right out the gate that all of us are like very collaborative on like, okay, how do we, how do we boost this? How do we make this, you know, launch in a way that we want it to launch? But in like, after that conversation, I had another conversation with one of the investors where he was like, okay, so like, what's the two to five year plan? And he was like, what kind of creative things do you want? And he was like, if you are on board, like I am interested in either ground up construction or, you know, one of one experiences, like, and so I think that in finding people who are investing with you, who have already fallen in love with kind of the creative nature of short-term rentals, you're also shaking hands with people who would be most likely to do some creative projects like that. And, and for Emily and I, that was a big like reason why we turned away from continuing to work with Super O Slabs because it was drawing in money from people who maybe weren't previously exposed to short-term rentals. And so we had to go with really safe bets like really safe, had a ton of data, had a ton backing, why it would be a great investment, but it like kind of stripped the creativity out of it. Um, and, you know, anyone who's done a high-end short-term rental knows the level of risk that you have to put into these properties because you have to do things that no one in, the, in your market is already doing. Mm-hmm. And, and so finding people who have really competed at a high level in the short-term rental space that now have that money to give we're starting to find that those are also the same people who want to do these crazy creative projects that we are super gung ho about doing in our future too. For sure. Okay. So, so that's kind of the difference between like doing a fund and then finding partners for one deal. When you have a fund, they're just very passive investors pumping money in and it's up to whoever's managing the fund to deploy that out how they want. So you lose that collaboration. But in your case, you're bringing on four people plus you guys. So you've got five vested interests who are like collaborating with ideas. I like that. I feel like I love that. I can see pros and cons to both. Like probably the fund is nice if you don't want people breathing down your neck. But I think when you are just getting started, like it might be like a very valuable resource to get that feedback from people who are like fully, like they put their faith behind this deal and they believe in it as much as you and they want to collaborate Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It really feels like kind of a cheat code in my opinion. It's like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if all of us have the same three years of experience, the experience is different, right? So there are just like crazy things that they've experienced that we haven't. There are systems that they've put in place that we haven't and vice versa. And so, 
Um, you know, if you are, you're, if your intent is to have them be completely silent and completely passive, like I will be the first one to say, I struggle with that because I'm such a control freak on these properties. Right. I'm yeah. like, I want to do it my way and I want to have it like my hands in it. And I want to just like be the hardest worker in the room and and not share it and, and have the vision be very, you know, direct. Um, and in turn, it's like, no, you have to approach it from a, a point of, understanding the value that they bring, being willing to like put your ego aside and be like, no, these other people do know a lot that can be valuable um, and kind of lean into it. So um, even though they are silent investors, they're not silent, but it it is absolutely to our advantage in the sense that they've just got a ton of experience and and help to offer. Yeah, I think you're right. They obviously did something right to get to the point where they have a casual hundred thousand dollars to invest so like taking their you know like take what they have to say as as basically free consulting and i love what you said at the beginning too instead of like paying for a course on how to raise private money you just dove into people already doing it and like learned (laughs) alongside them i think that that's the best way so that's wonderful um i had another question okay here i think this is like the last big thing i want to touch on but how do you lay out these terms like what do you put in the contract to be like i'm paying you out in six months in a year after that, do you pay like, you know, 10% here and then it's like 20% later? Like, I, I have no idea what any of this looks like. Do you make ever any guarantees? Is anything ever backed by like promissory notes or anything? Like, please de- debunk all of this for me. Yeah. So none of it, like I said at the beginning, like n- no two deals are the same, right? Okay. So every single time, like in theory, right? You want to find partners who want to keep reinvesting with you and you can reinvest with those partners and then find new partners and reinvest over and over again. Uh, because that process is really long. Like at the beginning, those negotiations, you're you're basically, you know, developing a prenup and you're developing this like outline of like what this divorce looks like if it turns into a divorce <laughs> and what your terms and conditions are during that marriage. Um, and so we had, you know, been exposed to an operating agreement that Superos Labs had that we just like, you know, got to look through, flip through, understand what these investors were signing. Um, and then when it came time for us to do our own thing, we took that um, operating agreement and we like looked at all the negotiating points and we basically just typed one up that we had typed up ourselves. Like I like added my own, you know, points in there and just like basically outlined what I thought it needed to say. Um, from a non-legal jargon perspective, right? Um, and so we typed it all up and we went through and we started really negotiating. So there was like probably three full days um, of negotiations back and forth on, you know, 14-page document that just really outlines all the nitty-gritty. Um, so like when we were with Superos Labs, there was an 8% pref, meaning that like the investors got the first 8% of profit before we started splitting the last portion of it 50-50. Um, on the Orange Cadillac deal, we also have a pref set in there for the capital investors that say like, look, you invested your capital, we invested our sweat equity, you get the first portion of money and then everything after we split a certain way. Um, the equity and the cash flow are not 50-50 because they wanted to prioritize equity, we wanted to prioritize cash flow. Okay. Um, but there was a point in time on the Orange Cadillac deal where I, I guess I hadn't vocalized that I had just like typed up this this operating agreement myself and we hadn't like gone through with an attorney to make it legally binding yet. Um, because I didn't, you know, we didn't want to pay for an attorney until we had figured out kind of hashed out what our, our outline was. Um, and so we had an investor take the outlined version to their attorney and their attorney (laughs) came back and their attorney was like, who did this? (laughs) This Like whoever their attorney is, is like the worst attorney in the world. Like none of this is legally binding. Like it's so casual. Like it's like literally me writing it. Like I'm writing an email to a friend, right? (laughs) So bad. And so they came back and they were like, who is your attorney? And I was like, I know I told you guys that this is just us outlining it. We're about to take it to an attorney. Um, and so, you know, the attorney just said like their attorney had like ripped the OA apart and was just like, this is horrible. Like, you know, just what kind of inexperienced humans are you dealing with? I'm dying. Um, oh my God. And so it was like a happy mistake. You know, they were like, oh my gosh, yeah, I remember that you did say that like my bad. Um, and then we just took it to an attorney after we had outlined everything and kind of ironed out all of those nitty gritty details, um, took it to an attorney, they made it official and then we all signed it and 
and we've got an LLC with everyone under it. We've got the operating agreement with everyone's signature on it. We've got a bank account that everyone has exposure to. So everyone can see what's in that bank account at any point in time. And that was it. Then it was off to the races. They wired the money over and we started spending it. Do you create a new LLC for every deal? You have to, right? Because there's different people involved in each one. Right. So if we were to reinvest the money that we earned from Orange Cadillac into another property with the same group of people, or if we were to buy another property before we saw the profits from Orange Cadillac with the same group of people, we would put it in the same LLC. But Mm -hmm. every single partnership, even if it's like four out of the five investors from Orange Cadillac, it would get a whole new separate LLC. What about if you keep the same, let's say five investors, what if you kept the exact same five people on another deal, but their percentages changed? Like on the first deal, one gave 50 and the remaining 50 was split amongst four, you know, but then on the next deal, they each get 20. Would you have to do a different LLC in that case? Or it's just outlined like... Yeah, you wouldn't have to do a new LLC, but you would have to do a new operating agreement for that specific property. Okay, okay. Um, Wow, this is so interesting. I feel like I could do like another hour with you guys. I feel like half my questions weren't answered, but I don't want (laughs) to. I mean, you answered everything, but I still am just like buzzing with so many more things. Um, Is there I know we've got a few minutes left, we honestly might have to do a part two. So to wrap up, is there anything else like you guys want to talk about that I just like some big glaring thing I missed for today? Hmm. I, I mean, I think you really asked all the big questions. I think you kind of broke it down because you, it's, it feels like you had all the same roadblocks that we had in looking at partnering and using other people's money. Um, I think really like if I had to go back and really stress one point of it, it's to make sure that you outline the expectation that you're setting within the people who are being the boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not only like, for me, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that we raised the capital. Like I would, you know, handle it a hundred percent on my own. Um, but you want to make sure that there's clear definable roles for the people who are actually bringing it to life, because you definitely don't want to get in a situation where you've got a similar role as somebody else. And all of a sudden you're doing 90% of the work and they're doing 10% of the work. Um, because at the end of the day, it's like counterproductive to not continue doing deals with the same group over and over again, because of how heavy of a lift it is on the front end and how big of a risk people are taking that don't know if they work well together yet. Um, And so I think that that was one of those things where I'm looking back on it and I was like, okay, I, you know, I didn't understand the roles of the boots on the ground enough to really understand what I was willing and not willing to do. Um, Still a fantastic deal, no doubt. But like, if I were to go into it again, I would have a little bit of a different perspective or be asking for a different amount. Um, which is going to come with experience, you know, like you're not going to get it hundred percent right on the first one. Like you are going to hit obstacles that you were not anticipating. And so as long as, you know, you feel like you're the type of person, person who has patience to really work through some hard stuff together, um, then you've got a good team and you've got people that you want to move forward with. How would you decide in a case like that? Like if somebody was supposed to come on as the co-host and then they're just not performing to what everybody expected, could they be like voted out and replaced with somebody who, how do you decide like how much voting power each person gets? Is it just based on the amount of money they put in? Yeah. (laughs) Another really good question. It was a, that was a point of a big conversation in this orange Cadillac deal is just like who has the voting power. So, you know, in this specific deal, we had two boots on the ground and three investors and in a typical, um, OA, like the one that we started from, it was just like majority rules, right? But you don't want to leave yourself in a situation where like your investors have more power than you You put all the sweat equity in and you can just like get pushed out immediately. Um, So in that specific deal, we chose to do major majority, which means that four out of five people have to vote a certain way for anything to be changed. Um, and, And that felt like you know, the best solution for the team that we had specifically. Um, And that changes per project, right? You have to make sure that you're paying attention to how it's advantageous and could be really harmful to you in different scenarios. And you really have to play it all the way through like, okay, and the world comes crumbling down. We deal with another, another COVID. We have zero people in that property. And all of a sudden this half a million dollar property is going to cost us five grand a month. And we're just pouring more money into it. Like, how do we make sure that in that case scenario, nobody really gets screwed over? So it's just, it's part of those uncomfortable conversations that you have to have on the front end, but 
um, totally worth it if you don't have to put a dollar of your own money into it. <laughs> dang, dang. Okay, last question I thought of. How do you, and you sort of briefly touched on this earlier, but like with the property that I have my eyes on right now, I asked a friend who knows like realtors and investors in the area if he could like hit them up for me. And then I got super nervous. Like what if they just see the deal and see the potential and like they take it? How do you kind of protect yourself from, from people like swooping in on what you found? And it's like, I'm torn because it's like, I, I feel like if I'm too closed minded or like too protective of it, I'm never going to get anything back that I need. But if I put it out there too much, like, I don't know, how do you balance that or protect yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, for Orange Cadillac, we got it under contract before we started raising capital. Okay. Um, and that was, you know, we had big intent on finding someone who could take down that property on their own, but didn't want to invest all that money on their own. Um, and so that was, you know, our strategy and kind of finding a partner who is going to be able to help us in that way, take down a property that we would not be able to get financing for without. Um and so that was their negotiating chip, right? Is like, look, I cannot be boots on the ground. I can't design a property like you can, but I can handle the lending like you can. So it's really finding people that can compliment you. Um, and then also now, like say, say the boots on the ground guy, Matt, that I work with on Orange Cadillac said, I do not have capacity to do another property, right? I, I, I can't like embark on another journey with you. I can't handle this partnership. Like you're going to have to go on your own if, if you find another deal. I could then go to some of the investors and knowing now that they have zero interest in being boosts on the ground, I have full trust and faith in them okay. that they would be willing to like get that property under contract and then I would handle it and I would give them a larger portion of the equity than I took on the front end for handling all of that before we even brought them in on the deal. So um, it's just, you know, another example of how it would be the same people, but handled completely different in the OA. And so um, you know, I think what Emily and I've realized is it like really is a relationship game yeah. more so than like a strategy game. It's like, it really comes down to all the soft skills and you being able to communicate what you want, what you're willing to offer, why you're valuable, um, and build, you know, relationships that you trust. Yeah. I honestly think that that's the biggest thing I learned from you today. Like I, for some reason in my head, always thought that if you found people to invest in one deal, if you do another deal, you just got to start from scratch and like find all new people. But yeah, it's so obvious. Just use the people who are already trusting you, who you're already making them money. Like that's the easiest to pitch to. And then you're just furthering that relationship more and more. So thank you for that. I don't think I would have ever thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're good. We're coming up on the hour. I don't want to hold you guys any longer, but I truly think I need you on for a part two because this is like, yeah. you're literally blowing my mind. And I cannot believe when you said that the first time you asked for private money was a year ago. You guys seem, this gives me hope that in a year I can, I can know as much as you guys. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much. Is there any parting thoughts before we jump off? I don't think so. I mean, I think you asked all of the big questions. Emily, do you have anything? I think the only thing is getting past the mental block yeah. that people would be too scared to give you their money. I was like, no way. There's no way people are going to give us their money. There's absolutely no way that like people trust us enough. But we, I know that I know what I'm doing, but I just didn't think other people saw that, but they do. And getting past that mental block for anybody who's like needs to be bringing in money. It's so much easier than you think it is. And people actually do trust you because you've shown that you know what you're doing. That was a really big mental shift for me during this process that people actually did want to give us money to build these properties. I was shocked. Do you need to have a social media following to get investors? It doesn't oh. hurt. It doesn't hurt. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really doesn't hurt. I mean, again, it's like if you can, you can sell someone who's never been exposed to you at all. Right. I mean, it's going to require you to have some stronger sales skills and maybe have a more well thought out deck when you are presenting it. I would go through like several iterations of selling it to people who you're not trying to sell it to before you bring it mm. to an investor. Um, but the social media side of things has made it I mean, when we talk about it, we're like, this has been way easier than we ever anticipated. And it was because we had never, we had like put in the work of showing people what we were doing for three years before we ever asked anyone for anything. And so we've had people who have been watching us perform for three years and building up that trust with us for three years subliminally before we ever asked them for a single dollar. So um, you know, if, if there are people who are currently in a season of building Airbnbs or just like you, like all of our investors so far have come from 
people we've hosted on our podcast. Like that has been a direct reflection where afterwards they're like, and now that people know that we raise capital, it's like every time we host a podcast, all of these people are like, so do we have any new deals coming up that we can invest in? And That's it's incredible. like, we're not even seeking it out anymore. People are are kind of knocking at our door. What a good um, problem so, to have. <laughs> good for you guys. Right. That's right. incredible. So yeah, I highly recommend like, it. Yeah, it's super helpful. Like, I think it creates the connections that doesn't take away from like, make sure you do your due diligence on a property, make sure you make the correct deck, make sure that that partnership makes sense to you, that the relationship you're going to have with those people. But yeah, if you're in the stage of putting together a property, eyes on you is never a bad thing. So start filming your process and just put it out there because that made a huge difference for us. That is wonderful. I think that's the perfect place to end it. If any of you listening now want to invest with the Carwells, because I feel like I do, um, I will drop all their contact info and how to reach them in the show notes. Uh, But mostly it's the Carwells on Instagram and TikTok. We'll drop all of that. Um, Thank you guys so much, Emily and Sarah. This was amazing. I truly, I think I have learned the most from you out of any podcast guest I've had on. So thank you for just absolutely blowing my mind. That's so sweet. And thank you so much for having us on. This has been a blast. Sure. All right. Thank you. Bye, guys. Have a good one. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole? I got to be honest, I actually feel kind of bad calling this host the Airbnb Hole, but I, I, I want to talk about them and you'll see why. So this host posted in a hosting Facebook group and said, Hi, all. How would you go about this? This is probably the most difficult guest we've had since we listed officially in December 2022. Review brought our five-star rating down to a 4.8. From the moment he booked till the last day of checkout, it was one request or question or the other, with communication also being a major barrier. From wanting to bring a pet, which we didn't agree on, to wanting to add more people to the reservation, two plus the initial 17, they ended up being 17 instead of 16, for which we didn't charge for the extra guest. The major complaint to us three days after check-in was a leak in the room and we sent out a maintenance person almost immediately to check and he didn't find anything. Review comes in and the private review translation is, we need to do a deep cleaning and we didn't have pots big enough to cook for their group, something that was never communicated to us prior to the review. Literally five minutes after the review came in, someone sent a booking inquiry and asked why we have a 4.8 rating. Is there something I can do? Send Airbnb a message. Can I justify this somehow? And then they posted a screenshot of the review. It is in another language, and so I actually don't know what it says. But, you know, like they said in this post, it translated to something about not having a big enough pot and that it needed to be deep cleaned. But in each category, you can see they left five in accuracy, five for check-in, five for communication, five for location, five for value, three stars for cleanliness, and four stars overall. Okay, you guys, <laughs> I I know... Like, if I was a host in this situation and you're very new, they just started in December of 2022, they don't have a lot of reviews yet, so I get it. It sucks that a four-star rating can bring your review from a 5 to a 4.8. This is so not the end of the world. (laughs) This is so truly not the end of the world, and I know it sucks when it's like your first quote-unquote bad review ever, but... I mean, I, I don't know. Like, maybe they need a deep cleaning. I think that we are so... I I just see, I've seen so many hosts that are way too quick to suddenly be like, well, it's not fair because I didn't charge the guest extra for their extra guest. So why did they knock me down a star? Okay, that's on you then. If that's your policy to charge for extra guests, then you should have done that. That's completely unrelated to them thinking your place deserved three stars for cleanliness. I, I don't know. I mean, Look, maybe there's still something. Honestly, if it were me, I would still call Airbnb because why not? Maybe they'll remove the review and maybe you can try and argue that they broke house rules by bringing in extra people and trying to bring in a pet. So they, you know, you could argue that they shouldn't be allowed to bring in guests anyway. But I just think that we have to, we have to do better. It's, it sucks because as hosts, we take our property so personally. But if you think about it, every other business owner gets the occasional bad review. And I'm sure it sucks when they do. If you're a restaurant owner, if you're a hairdresser, if you're a manicurist, if you're literally anything, musicians, celebrities, like everybody gets bad reviews. There's always somebody who's just not going to like your product. It is not the end of the world. The fact that a guest inquiry came in five minutes after asking why they had 4.8 stars, that is so weird to me. 
I honestly, I don't know why this person would lie, but I kind of don't believe that that happened. I'm just going to straight up say that. I kind of don't believe that that happened. If it did, that guest is just weird. 4.8 stars is still really good on Airbnb. That's still enough to be a super host. That's so bizarre to me that somebody would ask that, especially because you can see why. If they're wondering why they have a bad review, they can go and read it. So I kind of feel like that didn't happen. But either way, I, I'm not going to call this host the Airbnb hole. I felt this same exact way when I got my first four-star review, but this is just something that comes with time. You got to just learn how to let these ones go. Again, still try to call Airbnb and get it removed because why the heck not? Maybe they'll help you, but this can't be something that destroys your day to the point where you post screenshots on a Facebook group asking for advice. Go deep clean your place. They told you the problem with your place? Take, take that as constructive feedback and go deep clean the place. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye!